You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. So hard to compare these things, but I, I think it's fair to say that by any anyone's lights, this is one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. Federal prosecutors moved at warp speed to charge FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried in a sweeping eight-count indictment for allegedly misappropriating billions of dollars in customer funds for his personal use and risky bets by sister trading house Alameda. Manhattan U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said Bankman Freed scammed FTX customers and venture capital backers out of billions, even though the crypto maven might not fit the typical profile of a fraudster. Well, you can commit fraud in shorts and T-shirts in the sun. I mean, that's possible, too. Just a few weeks ago, Bankman Freed was on ABC TV denying any comparison to Bernie Madoff. When you look at the classic Bernie Madoff story, there was no real business there. The whole thing, as I understand it, I think, was was just one one big Ponzi scheme, right? FTX, that was a real business. But prosecutors say FTX was just a scam from day one. Or as John Ray, its new CEO, put it. This is really old-fashioned embezzlement. This is just taking money from customers and using it for your own purpose. Not sophisticated at all. My guest is former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti, a partner at Brian Cave Leighton Paisner. With complex financial crimes, it usually takes prosecutors a while to bring charges. It took the feds more than two years to charge Jeff Skilling after the Enron collapse. So what do you make of the speed with which these charges were brought? It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. I have never seen a case of this scope brought within weeks of the precipitating event before. In other words, I used to investigate when I was a federal prosecutor, complex financial crime. Those investigations would typically take years. A fast investigation would take months. And now we're seeing a case that was brought a little over a month after the collapse of FTX. So that's just absolutely astounding. And I think what it speaks to, when you look at that end, the breadth of the charges that are brought against Mr. Bankman Freed, it really suggests to me a confidence that prosecutors have in this case that's remarkable that I haven't seen before. This is a sweeping indictment charging conspiracy, fraud, money laundering, among other things. What struck you most about it? A couple things make this stand out. One is the sheer breadth 
and brazen nature of the alleged fraud. This is not a fraud scheme related to a very particular portion of FTX's business. It's not related to a specific deal or a specific customer. What the feds have alleged is that effectively all of FTX was a giant fraud on its customers, that all Alameda was defrauding its customers and investors. Very wide-scale fraud, very simple, straightforward, garden-variety fraud. So that, I think, certainly contributes to the confidence the feds have. Another thing that's unusual here is that Mr. Bankman-Fried took it upon himself to answer everyone's question about this and really locked himself into a story more than I've ever seen before. We're not talking about one lone interview. Mr. Bankman-Fried spoke to many reporters. He spoke on Twitter spaces, really answered very insightful questions for hours, making it very difficult for his defense counsel to weave a story that isn't already locked in. And so if prosecutors know that they can contradict the story that he's already locked himself into, I think that could explain a lot of their confidence. Yeah, surprising because I'm sure his lawyers told him to be quiet. But do you think he was trying to set up a defense basically saying, I made mistakes, I may have commingled funds, whatever, but I didn't mean to defraud anyone? I think that's right. To be fair, that is not an uncommon defense in a fraud case. In fact, I would say that that is in many ways the typical defense that you would see in a fraud case. In other words, I may have been inattentive or an app or a bad businessman, but I'm not a fraudster. I wasn't intending to do that because the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant had the intent to defraud. But that said, the problem for Mr. Bankman-Fried is really with how this is going to play out at a trial. This is why he really did himself a disservice by concluding that he didn't need lawyers. You know, he said at one point that he understood the law better than lawyers did and that sort of thing. And I think he did himself a disservice because under the federal rules of evidence, he cannot introduce his out-of-court statements in his defense. They are inadmissible hearsay. But if the government wants to pick and choose and find bits of those interviews that are incriminating, they can introduce those specific pieces of his interviews as admissions by a party opponent. And so he put himself in a situation with a lot of downside and no upside. He is going to be facing in a criminal case a lot of negative statements that the feds are going to be playing his way. And he can't play any positive statements. His response has to be to take the stand. And if he does that, he's going to be facing a barrage of his own prior statements. He's effectively locked himself in regarding his own testimony and put himself in a situation where he's got to remember and be consistent with all the things he said in the past, even if his lawyers later realize that some of the things he said previously were not the smart thing for him to say at trial. So what strikes me is that prosecutors have said this was one of the biggest financial frauds in American history, billions of dollars disappearing. Yet, as you said, and as John Ray, who has taken over FTX, said, this is just plain old embezzlement. So why did it take so long then for it to be discovered, for it to fall apart? That's a great question. I think there's a number of reasons why. One is that SBS was able to successfully convince not only the customers of FTX and his investors, but also the public at large, that he was some sort of visionary, 
you know, potentially the world's first trillionaire because he had this large personality. And I think that that caused many people not to exercise the appropriate judgment and conduct the appropriate due diligence. I think another factor is that it's fair to say that there has been a lot of excitement about crypto and enthusiasm that has caused many who are not sophisticated in that space to put money into digital assets without carefully considering that investment. And I think it's also fair to say that he's really good at fooling people and that it's not entirely unusual for fraudsters to get away with their fraudulent activity for years. I mean, Bernie Madoff got away with it for years. And Bernie Madoff had obviously a lot of institutional validation that came from his prior position. But SBF over time was heralded by many people as some sort of visionary. You know, his photo on covers of major magazines, he was seen as some larger than life entrepreneur. And I think that contributed to the trust that people had for him. Now, as far as the evidence at trial, John Ray said, we're dealing with a literal paperless bankruptcy. It makes it difficult to track. They didn't put things in writing, communications that disappeared, etc. Will that also make it more difficult to prosecute? When I was a prosecutor, I used to always say that emails are a prosecutor's best friend. And it's certainly a white-collar prosecutor's best friend. Mm-hmm. Typically, emails, text messages, IMs, other types of communications usually are what you rely on to establish intent to defraud. In addition, other types of documents, whether they're ledgers or other types of financial records, are really important to provide a snapshot, not only of what the company's books look like at a certain time, but also what people like SBF knew at particular points in time. That doesn't exist here. I do think that in a different kind of case, it might matter more. The beauty of the government's case from their perspective is that they're not really claiming anything that relies too much on the details. I think at its core, the fraud case, the main fraud case, there's a number of different frauds that are really that are charged, a number of different schemes that are charged. But I would say the main scheme is that FTX was taking customer money, promised customers that their money would remain at FTX. It wouldn't be used by FTX for a different purpose. That can't be disputed. And the money went elsewhere. And so given that the government can prove that he signed off on those money transfers, I think between that and his public statements, they appear confident. And so I think that will mitigate the lack of of paper and the disappearing chats and all the other things that Mr. Ray mentioned, which otherwise might prove fatal to a criminal case. So Bankman-Fried has said that he had little involvement in the management of Alameda after he passed control of it to Caroline Ellison, and then statements that customer funds were passed to Alameda because of an accounting error. That might be part of his defense. Do you think it has any weight? It certainly may be part of his defense. What I would say is that it would have been a lot smarter for him to wait for his lawyers to get discovery from the government, (laughs) determine whether or not the evidence backs those claims up, and then have his lawyers assert those claims rather than him. But now, yes, I do think he's got to hang his hat on those things, and the question is whether or not it ends up being true. What I will say is if it turns out that those statements are not accurate, that's a major problem for him because it's going to be impossible for him to successfully pivot away from that 
at trial, given his prior statements. What I, I do suspect is that the government, whether or not there's paper or not, to get to the point you were raising earlier, they're going to be able to establish from a variety of different individuals and different documents what exactly happened and what uh, SBF knew. And it's worth noting that the other individuals involved have different interests than Mr. Bankman-Fried. They're not his servants. And ultimately, they have their own potential liability to consider. And presumably, for example, the people at Alameda uh, are not going to want to suggest that they were responsible for FTX's misuse of customer funds. Presumably, what they're going to say is that Mr. Bankman-Fried authorized this and told all of them that this was appropriate. I would anticipate that their testimony would be something along those lines. What do you think the hardest part of the prosecution's case against him will be? Well, that's a very, very good question. I think that one thing that's really surprising about the government's case is the breadth of the case that they brought. Now, part of that is because they're extraditing him. Once you extradite someone, you cannot add charges. You can always dismiss charges, but you can't add charges. Um, And so I do think they were probably trying to be over-inclusive. If I was the supervisor looking at this indictment, that sent to me for review, I would really question why we're charging campaign finance case as part of a fraud case. I mean, in other words, if he's going to prison for fraud, what do we care? I mean, just tell the judge about the campaign finance stuff. She can consider that a sentencing. But, like, let's just charge our strong counts and 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 just argue the rest of it to the judge at sentencing. You know, it's not like you need those counts. I think that similarly with money laundering, that it has a complexity and a bunch of elements that you have to prove that makes your case more complicated. And I tend to believe that, particularly in a white collar uh, crime case, the simpler story usually wins. And so I would try to keep my prosecution cases as simple and straightforward as possible. He said he's going to fight extradition. What grounds can he possibly offer not to be extradited? And I don't know off the top of my head because I'm not an expert on Bahamian law (laughs) um, or Bahamian law. But I would just say that generally speaking, because I say this from the perspective of someone who used to be on the federal prosecution side trying to extradite the defendants I was prosecuting, generally the offense needs to be a crime in both the U.S. jurisdiction and the foreign jurisdiction. So he might try to argue that let's say the campaign finance fraud was, you know, conspiracy was not actually a crime and under Bahamian law. So that's possible. I mean, I, I don't really view that as um, an important part of this defense strategy. In other words, I view that as buying time. You know, he, he spoke during the Twitter space that I listened to about how he was completely broke and was trying to figure out how to pay his lawyers. He had less than $100,000 in his name. He was looking at the directors and officers insurance and so forth to find a way to pay lawyers. So, you know, buying a little bit of time makes sense for someone in this position. So that, that may be part of it as well. Damian Williams also said, while this is our first public announcement, it will not be our last. So for a U.S. attorney to say that with such confidence, and he sort of said it twice, do you think that they've already got more indictments ready to go? Yes, I was surprised by that because the U.S. attorneys are supposed to be very careful, and they are generally very careful about their work when they make a announcement in a press release because what they say 
can be used by defendants in a motion to try to argue that they have been unfairly prejudiced and so forth. So they're usually very, their words are very carefully uh, orchestrated and planned out. And I think there, he was trying to imply the charges against others were down, down the pike. He also appeared to be sending a message that anyone involved in this should cooperate. And so I think that that was definitely part of the point here. I think he was trying to send a message to people like Caroline Ellison, other associates of uh, SPF, that it was time for them to come forward and cooperate with the government and tell them what, what they knew. So finally, you know, you hear ridiculous numbers, like 115 years that he's facing. If these charges are proved, will he get out of prison? I can explain why that's such a, a silly number, that 100 and something years that he's looking at. You know, we often hear those in press reports when someone's charged that they're facing 100 or hundreds of years up to hundreds of years in prison. What that number constitutes is all of the maximum possible sentences under law for each one of the counts if you stacked those counts one after another. And as a practical matter, that's never going to happen. So, what? yes, that's the, the theoretical cap. But what really matters here are a couple things. First of all, the judge is required under federal law to look at a variety of factors when fashioning a sentence. Those factors are very broad. They include things like the history and characteristics of the defendant, the nature and circumstances of the offense, essentially everything surrounding the defendant. And, and by the way, that includes things he wasn't charged with. That includes things he may have even been acquitted for. If he's acquitted on the campaign finance charge, the judge can nonetheless consider that conduct. So, you know, all of that will be thrown into the mix and the judge is going to make a judgment. In addition to that, there is something called the federal sentencing guidelines. They are just that, though. They are only guidelines. They're not uh, rules. They're not laws. So a judge can disregard them, but they do have an influence on judges. I think they can anchor a judge's decision. So if I was going to handicap what a sentence would look like uh, for SPF, I would say as a starting point that it would probably be something in the uh, range of multiple decades in prison. Uh, you know, we recently saw the founder of Theranos sentenced to 14 years in prison, and she was pregnant at the time. Uh, in my experience, too, I, I think that particularly someone who has a young child, a you know, pregnant woman, would get a lower sentence. I would expect Mr. Bankman-Fried to get a higher sentence than her. And additionally, another factor that not only dramatically increases sentencing guidelines, but also is heavily considered by judges when weighing a sentence in a fraud case, is what's called the loss amount. In other words, the total amount of money at issue that was lost by victims. And I think that the loss amount here is likely to be substantially more than it was in the Theranos case. So I, I think that Mr. Bankman-Fried is going to likely receive a sentence of much more than those, those 14 years. I think he should prepare himself for multiple decades in federal prison. Thanks so much. That's Renato Mariotti, a partner at Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner. Coming up, we'll look at the SEC complaint. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. 
But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The questions we have are, you know, where, where are the assets? How, how we locate those assets? Uh, it's a mining exercise at this point. Uh, and uh, look, I, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to recover all the losses here. Right? Uh, money was spent that we'll never get back. John Ray, who's guided dozens of companies, including Enron, through bankruptcy, called FTX's collapse one of the worst business failures he's ever seen, saying it was run by a small group of grossly inexperienced people with a complete lack of oversight and financial controls and an unprecedented lack of documentation. You know, even in the most uh, failed companies, you have a fair roadmap of what happened. Uh, we're dealing with literally a sort of a, a paperless bankruptcy in terms of how they created this company. It makes it very difficult to, uh, uh, to trace and track uh, assets. Currently, FTX's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, is sitting in a Bahamas prison, fighting almost certain extradition to the U.S. to face criminal charges and civil lawsuits by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Futures Exchange Commission. Joining me is securities law expert Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. How would you describe generally the SEC's complaint? Uh, the SEC's complaint in this matter is very interesting because it really spells out a very basic fraud in the sense of misusing customer deposits at the FTX exchange and using those for personal purposes by Bankman Freed and others, as opposed to you know what some people thought might be a very complex fraud. It turns out to be very garden variety, except just on a very massive scale. The SEC's jurisdiction is limited to fraud in security sales, and there's ambiguity about whether crypto is a security. So how did the SEC steer clear of that in its complaint? The SEC has brought securities fraud charges in its complaint, and the way they have done that is that they have alleged that starting in 2019, so way back to the very beginning of when FTX was founded, that misrepresentations were made to investors, including U.S. investors, to induce them to invest in the equity of FTX. These are separate than the customers who traded crypto. They were institutional investors who invested billions of dollars into FTX. And the SEC said that that was done through misrepresentations and omissions. And that's how the SEC has crafted its securities fraud complaint in this matter. Tell us a little about the SEC's allegations that Bankman-Fried concealed FTX's relationship with Alameda Research and used commingled customer funds. One of the key allegations in the SEC complaint 
has been that there is an affiliated hedge fund called Almeda Research, which essentially traded crypto, made markets in crypto, and was supposed to have been a separate company. But the SEC has alleged there was a significant amount of commingling of assets, specifically customer assets at FTX that was used to fund Almeda's operations. And that was contrary to the representations that FTX was making to customers as well as to its lenders and investors. Let's go through different parts of the complaint. Explain how the SEC says that Bankman-Fried misled investors. The SEC has laid out a number of specific uh, claims with how Bankman-Fried misled investors. They center around representations that Bankman-Fried made, that there was risk controls in place at FTX, that investor money was safe, and also that Alameda was not uh, given any sort of special treatment. That had been a subject of repeated misrepresentations, according to the SEC, that Almeida was just like any other customer on the FTX platform. But in fact, according to the SEC's complaint, it was treated very differently. The SEC has alleged that Almeida had a virtually unlimited credit line with FTX, that it was exempted from many of the margin requirements that typical customers had to comply with. And a result, that led to massive losses for um, investors and customers of FTX. What about the poor controls FTX had and risk management and those loans to Sam Bankman-Fried and other staff? Yeah, the loans are a particularly incriminating fact that the SEC has alleged because what the complaint says is that uh, customer money from the FTX exchange was transferred over to Almeida. And from there, Almeida made a loan to hundreds of millions of dollars to insiders, including Bank, Bank and Freed, um, and also used the money to purchase lavish uh, real estate and other um, expenses that were are clearly personal in nature. And as a result of this uh, sort of um, transactions, the SEC said that that was never disclosed to investors in FTX that that was going to happen. And in fact, the SEC alleges investors were told uh, completely the opposite, that uh, FTX was uh, completely fund separately from Almeida. Uh, but that turns out, according to the SEC, not to have been the case. So the SEC alleges that Bankman-Fried orchestrated this scheme to defraud equity investors. But yet, John Ray said that this is really just old-fashioned embezzlement, just taking money from customers and using it for your own purposes. So was there really an orchestrated scheme? That makes it sound much more sophisticated. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think that even though the purpose of the scheme, namely using customer funds for personal expenses and embezzlement is very basic, the way that it was done here shows a high degree of culpability, according to the SEC, because steps were taken by Franklin Freed and other executives to conceal the relationship with Almeida and to conceal the amount of money that was flowing from FTX to Almeida. And as a result of that, it makes it very hard for the new CEO, John Ray, and regulators to piece together exactly how funds have flowed. And now that's an ongoing process to, to really document how this money was moved and how much was moved and how much um, was lost as a result of these transactions. What would the SEC have to prove? What are the basics of what the SEC would have to prove if this went to trial? 
in addition to having to prove that the representations to investors were material, the key thing that the SEC has to prove is uh, what's called scienter, which is either intent or recklessness on the part of Bankman Freed. And in white collar cases like this one, a defendant's intent is always a contested issue. And I think we've seen a preview of Bankman Freed's defense in prior public statements that he's given where he says that he wasn't aware that FTX's customer deposits were being used to cover Almeida's debts and liabilities. So he's trying to set up as a defense that the underlings at the two companies were doing this and he wasn't aware of it. And that can be a tough defense to really be successful on. What kind of things would the SEC point to to show Sienter? In order to show Sienter, the SEC could prove a few different things. Number one is the personal benefits financially to Bankman Freed as a result of these transactions. And courts have held that when a person is getting personal benefits and money, that that can be an indication of motive and an opportunity to engage in securities fraud. But even beyond that, the SEC is going to have to look and prove the corporate structure and show how Bankman Freed approved transactions like money being moved from FTX customer accounts to Almeida. They're going to look at email correspondence between the other employees at FTX that may have updated Bankman Freed about what was happening. And I think importantly, there's been a lot of speculation and rightfully so as to whether there'll be cooperators in this case, other employees like Carolyn Ellison, who was the CEO of Alameda, who may be wanting to cut deals with the SEC and the prosecutors in exchange for their testimony against Bankman Freed. SEC Chair Gary Gensler said, We allege that Sam Bankman Freed built a house of cards on a foundation of deception while telling investors that it was one of the safest buildings in crypto. Does the SEC have to prove that investors relied on his alleged misrepresentations? The SEC itself does not have to prove reliance as part of its case. To the extent that there's going to be private lawsuits and class actions, those private lawsuits, the investors will have to prove reliance. So the SEC is set up in a way by statute that they have a lower burden in order to prove their case. So reliance is not part of the SEC's claims here. John Ray spoke about this unprecedented lack of documentation, the paperless bankruptcy. Is that going to make it much harder for the SEC? There's, in his view, a very shocking lack of any sort of paper or documentation to support loans and why and how money was moved from FTX to Almeida Research and where the money went from there. However, with digital assets and and crypto, there is going to be a record on the blockchain of a lot of these transactions. And while it may take more work for the investigators to comb through all of those transactions for the last three years, I think ultimately they're going to be able to put together a pretty complete picture of what happened, even though FTX's records themselves don't appear to be very good. Is prosecuting a case with crypto, is that a challenge for the SEC? At this stage, I don't think that prosecuting a crypto-based case like this is going to present any significant challenges. The SEC has been studying the market for years. They have a market abuse team that brought other cases in crypto. So there's a lot of institutional knowledge about the market. And I think one thing that's going to help is the fact that this appears to be uh, more or less a garden variety type of fraud and an embezzlement. You know, granted, it involved billions of dollars of customer assets. But at the same time, I think that with the transactions being publicly available on the blockchain and even 
having potential cooperators is going to make the SEC's job a lot easier. One nagging question I've had throughout these revelations about what Gensler called a house of cards is looking at the allegations, especially, for example, something like the billion-dollar loan to himself by a man who basked in publicity and self-promotion, the Super Bowl ads, the deals with sports teams, the political contributions, on and on. How did Bankman Freed ever expect to get away with this? I mean, the House of Cards was bound to collapse at some point. Yeah, absolutely. It's really shocking. And the SEC actually also discusses this in their complaint, where they say for the past three years, Bankman Freed has been out self-promoting himself as a responsible businessman and wanting to have regulation in the crypto industry and ethical practices. But you know, meanwhile, he used his reputation as a person who was running a legitimate crypto exchange to help convince investors to put more and more money into FTX. And all the while, according to the SEC, Bankman-Fried knew that it was setting up to be a very risky investment and then also misusing customer deposits. So all his public statements now can potentially be used against him in this SEC case. And what is the SEC asking for if it wins? The SEC is asking for several different things, um, like in all securities fraud cases. They want an injunction against future violations of the securities laws. They're asking Bank Friedman to give back any sort of money that was improperly taken out, and they're asking for civil penalties. The SEC is going to be working closely with the Department of Justice on a criminal case to help coordinate that, but the SEC is a civil agency, and as a result, it's limited to just monetary and injunctive relief. With the bankruptcy in place and with all the money that appears to have been taken here, is it likely that the SEC is going to recover any funds or get any penalties? I do think that there's a high likelihood that money is going to be uh, recovered, whether it's by the SEC or the DOJ or even the bankruptcy receiver. It's all going to go into the same pot, so to speak, to help make investors and creditors whole. But we have seen um, that uh, John Ray, the, the new CEO, has already taken steps to secure assets. So there are assets left. And I, I think it's instructive when we look back to the, to the Madoff situation. Um, in the early days, there was huge losses. But over time, uh, through enforcement efforts and, and lawsuits against third parties, like um, auditors, uh, law firms, and people who are supposed to be gatekeepers, that, that can also be another uh, source of recovery for both customers as well as creditors in the bankruptcy. The Senate banking chairman, Sherrod Brown, is calling for the SEC to regulate the crypto industry. Do you think that it's about time that they did or someone else should do it? I think there's no question that this FTX case is a wake-up call that's going to spurn significant new efforts at regulating the, the crypto industry. We've had a situation where billions of dollars of customer assets have been um, diverted and misused. And there's a framework that's already in place for exchanges and regulation that I think will be the roadmap for how the regulators will look to regulate crypto industry and exchanges. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission has also filed a suit against him. Does that work in coordination with the SEC? 
Yes, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, has also filed its own enforcement action in the same matter. It's going to be helpful for the SEC because it brings another uh, area of expertise to bear on the facts of this case. And in general, the regulators are going to cooperate uh, very closely so they're not stepping on each other's toes. So they're not going to be fighting over who has jurisdiction over this? Correct. The regulators usually are going to defer to the Department of Justice, and they're going to be the lead agency in a criminal case. And typically, the SEC and the CFTC will act in a supporting role for that. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. As FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried sits in a Bahamas prison fighting extradition to face fraud charges in the U.S., John Ray III has taken over as the CEO of FTX, dealing with one of the biggest corporate collapses since the Great Recession and trying to recover customer funds. Ray handled the Enron bankruptcy, but says he's never seen such an utter failure of corporate controls at every level of an organization. We're dealing with literally a sort of a, a paperless bankruptcy in terms of how they created this company. It makes it very difficult to, uh, uh, to trace and track uh, assets, uh, and particularly, as I've said, in the crypto world. Uh, it's, it's really unprecedented in terms of uh, the lack of documentation. Joining me is restructuring expert Jim Baer, president of CMBG Advisors. How difficult is this bankruptcy, even for someone with the experience of John Ray? I believe this is going to be qualitatively harder than most bankruptcy filings for a variety of reasons. You've got a lot of complexity here because there were rumored to be approximately 100 different entities set up. So trying to break this down in a bankruptcy, the most challenging thing is doing an accounting and getting your arms around what went on so that you have an ability to actually go out and in this type of situation, recover assets for the million people who've been harmed. If you look back to situations like Madoff in 2008, we're just now seeing distributions being made because it takes a long time to trace and recover assets. One of the things particularly difficult here is that there was such bad record keeping and there was so much complexity and commingling of assets that to actually determine how much money came in, how much money went out is going to be difficult. And then one way to bring back money is through going to people that received distributions during the last 90 days 
or 180 days or a year, depending on the different law that applies, and pulling that asset back. And in some cases, those are going to be innocent people that just got paid before someone else. And so under bankruptcy law, it's supposed to be done in a more pro rata fashion. And so you're going to have assets pulled back and then allocated to various people. And all of that is complex and takes a lot of time to do. So we've heard a lot about John Ray saying this is a paperless bankruptcy, but are the customer records the same as customer records elsewhere? So can he see who put in what? So I don't have access to actually the company records at this point. So all I can go on is what, as you pointed out, John has testified, for instance, before Congress or otherwise. It appears, as he said, that he's never seen a lack of documentation to this extent. When people put money into the exchange for trading, presumably, (laughs) presumably that money should be accountable because you would assume customer accounts were kept for the people so that you could, in fact, return money and or deal with those customers. Now, that is an assumption I'm making because I haven't actually seen those customer records, but I'm assuming that that does exist. But from there, where that money went and what checks and balances existed That, I think, from what we've heard, is pretty much non-existent. So he said at this point it's a mining operation. What did he mean by that? Well, my speculation what he means by that is in a mining operation, you're digging to actually uncover the minerals that you're looking for. In this instance, we're also, like, archaeologically digging or mining to find out actually where the assets are And we're looking for those in the various places and trying to uncover those assets. So he's been able to secure $1 billion of assets to coal wallets in a secure location. First of all, explain, what does he mean by coal wallets? This may be a crypto term. (laughs) Yeah, so when I think of a wallet in the crypto space, think about it from the perspective of a wallet that is a physical wallet, right? So you have a place where it's like a leather pouch where you put your money. When you're dealing with essentially a digital asset, think about a hard drive on a computer. Think about a thumb drive on a computer. You've got these storage devices, which are very different than a typical storage device that's physical, like a, a wallet, because you don't have physical assets, you have digital assets. And so when we think of terms like wallets or digital wallets, what we're talking about is a storage device for these digital assets. Does the fact that this is cryptocurrency make this harder? I don't think it's just because it's cryptocurrency per se that makes it harder because you can trace cryptocurrency. I mean, in the same way you can trace a wire transfer from one bank to another or from a bank to a customer, you can trace where these digital assets were transferred. From my understanding, from a technological perspective, you can trace that. So I don't think the fact that it was digital currency per se or digital assets per se that makes this harder. I think what makes this harder is the fact that it was so unregulated and it was so abused that the normal checks and balances like an independent board, like audited financials, like SEC regulation were non-existent. So one thing that confused me a little bit, Ray said that the collapse appears to stem from the absolute concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of grossly inexperienced and unsophisticated individuals. Is it that they were inexperienced and unsophisticated, or is it that they were swindlers who knew what they were doing? 
I suspect, but remember, we do have a concept of innocent until proven guilty. And so I like to try to be respectful of people and give them the benefit of the doubt. But here's what we do know. We do know they're inexperienced, meaning if you've been in the business world for a number of years, you understand the needs of checks and balances. You understand chain of control. You understand oversight. When you're youthful, right, and you haven't experienced some of the falls and the experiences of history, I think you're more prone to look for shortcuts, not knowing that shortcuts don't really work. You know, the tortoise and the hare, the hare is a, obviously a, a famous story, but when you're young, your youthful exuberance can sometimes lead you to believe that you know the rules don't necessarily apply to people in the same way when they're young. There's a certain sense of invincibility. I think the inexperience is part of it. And then the concentration of so much power in so few people without those checks and balances is a huge problem. And again, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. When you look at the way our country is set up with the three branches of government, it was specifically designed by the founding fathers so that there would be checks and balances. The corporate world really mirrors in a lot of ways our government. There are boards of directors. There are shareholders and there is a president. So think about that. The shareholders are essentially the voters in a republic. You've got the president of the company, which is like the chief executive officer. You have the board of directors, which really is kind of the oversight, like the legislative body, and that has to approve things. And so it was designed that way to create these checks and balances. Unfortunately, in the crypto space, especially, and in this specific situation, those checks and balances did not exist. There is in excess of $7 billion in losses. Ray's been able to secure $1 billion at this point. Does that sound hopeful to you? So I spend a lot of my time doing what John Ray does, which is restructuring, overseeing bankruptcies, liquidating companies. We do a lot of work in this space called Assignments for the Benefit of Creditors, which is a state alternative to federal bankruptcy. And so in these situations, one of the things you focus on is your job is as a fiduciary is to maximize value for creditors. And every situation is different. You have sometimes hard assets to recover. You could be working in a jewelry industry where you have diamonds that you can recover and sell off. Or you can be in a situation where the assets disappeared. The challenge in this situation is that we know there was a lot of commingling of money. We know that Alameda was a hedge fund. We know that there were investments being made, loans that were being made, and many of those investments went bad. If the investments turned out to be profitable, you could actually pull back those investments or you'd have those investments and you could share that with the creditors. But when you're dealing with a situation where actually loans were made with no ability to pay them back, investments were made into worthless companies or to bad investments, that money is gone forever. So then the question is, what do you look to for recovery? One is insurance. My understanding is there's very little insurance here. Another is you look to negligent people. Were there people on the board or other deep pockets with insurance that you might go after? My understanding is there's not a lot here in that situation. So one of the ways that you pull back money is you look at the people that did receive distributions in return of money. And you pull that money back and then you share it in a more equitable pro rata fashion with the other creditors. And we just don't know at this point how much money that's going to be. But realistically, I think we're going to look at billions of dollars of losses here. The liquidators appointed by a court in the Bahamas are fighting with 
FTX's bankruptcy lawyers. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Sure. So remember, we started by talking about the complexity of 100 different entities. When you have offshore operations and you have domestic operations, you have different jurisdictional issues. And each jurisdiction has a duty to look after its constituents. So in the U.S., we're looking at U.S. investors and U.S. citizens. In the Bahamas, their regulatory bodies are supposed to be protecting investors and the constituencies in the Bahamas. My understanding is that one of the 100 companies was a real estate company. And there's real estate that was actually owned and invested in in the Bahamas. From a jurisdictional perspective, the legislatures and the, the judges and the people tasked with protecting the assets in those jurisdictions are fighting for their jurisdictional rights over those assets. And of course, that's being challenged by the U.S. regulators and lawyers and so forth, because we want to get our hands on those assets for the people in the U.S. that have been harmed. So what I see going on here is there are some accusations flying back and forth, but but even putting that aside, they're just legitimate jurisdictional legal challenges that go back and forth when you have different jurisdictions involved in a dispute like this. The Bahamians want to remove the company that owns the real estate in the Bahamas from the U.S. bankruptcy. Is that an unusual thing to do in bankruptcy, to take one piece and say, no, this is separate? No, not at all. So, again, you've got a holding company structure in certain cases, and that's where there's a you know company that owns other companies. As I mentioned, allegedly, we're dealing with 100 entities, right? And so my understanding is that those all run up and are essentially controlled by Sam. But at the end of the day, there are jurisdictional issues and different companies may be, because they're incorporated or domiciled in different jurisdictions, there will be different rules that apply to those entities. Sometimes you can pull it all back to one jurisdiction, like a Delaware bankruptcy, but there may be very legitimate reasons why, for instance, this real estate company was set up in a manner that it really does belong in the Bahamas. Again, I haven't seen the documentation, but in complex bankruptcies, it's not unusual to have these kind of fights. How long is this likely to take? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? We're talking years. The reason is as follows. Again, I run a company called CNBG Advisors that does this type of work. And we do forensic accounting and we do restructuring and we trace assets. And, you know, we try to help fix companies or, or, or sell them off. And you've got simple assignments that can take a year or you have assignments that can take many years. When you're dealing with complexity, complexity is not your friend in these situations. It just isn't. And more often than not, when you see these levels of complexity, it's either intentionally or otherwise a way of obfuscation. And it's very, very difficult to trace through that. And you don't have unlimited money. You don't have unlimited resources. And even in a situation like this, where you do have more resources than you would typically have, there's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of digging, as you said, mining that goes on. And as much as we'd like it to get done quickly, the reality is the more entities involved, the more money involved, and the less record keeping, the harder it is to actually figure these things out. To put this in perspective, because I've dealt with this in a, a recent case, when you don't have proper accounting records, it is incredibly difficult to figure out where you know the money went and to really understand the arguments for the payment or not for the payment because you don't have the normal record keeping that you would use to document the money out and the money in. 
I think they're in Chapter 11, but is this a restructuring or is this a liquidation? I mean, does anyone expect FTX to come back? (laughs) That's a good question. Chapter 11, as you point out, is designed primarily for restructuring companies, whereas Chapter 7 is to liquidate companies. And Chapter 11 can end up with the sale of the company outside through what's called the Section 363 sale. But it is generally designed as a restructuring tool. In a situation like this, I do not expect FTX to come out as a viable company and exit bankruptcy and remain an operating entity. And having said that, there's 100 entities. There's this, this alleged real estate company, for instance. It's too early to say, will there be any salvageable parts of this estate that could emerge and continue on in some form or fashion. I think it's unlikely. I think, as you point out, it's likely to just be a liquidation over time. But the tools of investigation and forensic accounting and otherwise you know, will enable the bankruptcy judge and the trustee to dig deep to actually figure out what went on, even if the company does end up liquidating. So on a personal note, is this the kind of bankruptcy you'd like to take over or is it like, are the challenges interesting or is it just too much? Well, <laughs> for those of us who are in this space, I think that it there is something challenging about being confronted with a situation like this. So I would think that the complexity for those people that thrive on complexity and challenges would be intriguing. What I would find challenging here would be the fact that there are so many hurt people that I wouldn't be able to help. And one of the things that see in the cases that I'm working on is that sometimes we have the ability to really make a meaningful payment to creditors. And there's something very satisfying about that. On the other hand, some of people on my team, for instance, get incredibly frustrated when it just seems like it's a wash and there's no money going back to creditors. And so what I think will be painful for people in this situation working on this is to the extent they are frustrated and unable to return material amounts of money, I think that's going to be challenging. Do you think this is going to lead to more regulation of crypto? You know, in my career, because I started out as a corporate lawyer and was very involved in antitrust and SEC enforcement And, you know, there's always been a tension between laissez-faire economics and, you know, the Ayn Rand belief in libertarian operations and that, you know, the the all-powerful business community and the idea of trickle-down economics and letting businesses really do what's, you know, in their interest because it's what's, what's good for business is good for the American people, right? So that's one extreme. And the other extreme is, you know, real, real hands-on regulation that can cripple business because of the complexity of the regulation, it makes it so difficult to operate. And so there's that balance, right? I think there are areas, you know, when we see in our country, the ability to build high-speed rail, for instance, where it's environmentally and otherwise really, really difficult to get anything done, whether or not it's John Stewart talking about getting things built in California or the fact that it's still so hard to build affordable housing in California, You've got situations where regulation really does need to be refined and and pulled back. In the area of crypto, I think we have got a lot of work to do in terms of better regulation. And this hands-off approach, I think, has been a mistake. And I think that 
we need to realize that balance regulation is important. And in this instance, it's, it's sad that so many people are going to have been hurt by this. But I hope that the regulators wake up and realize that this has to be properly regulated like all other industries and that we will get back to a happy medium. Thanks for being on the show, Jim. That's Jim Baer, restructuring expert and president of CMBG Advisors. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.